Changes in Crime features influential thinkers in the police service and leading crime and policing researchers. Dr. Jason Roach is a chartered psychologist, professor of psychology and policing, and director of the University of Huddersfield's Secure Societies Research Institute. We discuss offender self-selection and trigger crimes, nudging crime prevention and learning directly from offenders. Welcome to Reducing Crime. I'm your host, Jerry Ratcliffe. In that brief window when COVID looked like it was starting to wane, I had a chance to speak at the University of Akureyri's annual policing and society conference hosted by former British police officer Andy Hill. Akureyri, you say? Yeah, it's in Iceland. The second largest city, in fact. Iceland's a fantastic place to visit, and I hadn't been in 30 years, so I couldn't say no. It also gave me a chance to catch up with Jason Roach. Jason is Professor of Psychology and Policing and Director for the Secure Societies Research Institute at Britain's University of Huddersfield. He's also a Chartered Psychologist and Editor-in-Chief for the Police Journal. Prior to joining the criminal justice field, Dr. Roach worked in psychiatric wards and mental health hostels in the north of England, which probably prepared him pretty well for a career in around policing. For some time, he was a crime analyst for the UK's Home Office before moving to academia. His research interests include investigative decision-making, cold-case homicide, and evolutionary psychology and crime. And he's written four books, including a key work in 2016 called Self-Selection Policing, co-authored with the British crime prevention legend Ken Pease. In the podcast, we talk about some of his current projects, including criminal decision-making, nudging and influencing crime prevention, and learning from offenders. For some strange reason, he also drops references to Al Capone, why Jason is the Grim Reaper of police colleges, highwayman Dick Turpin stealing a handsome cock, and why Liam Gallagher from Oasis is like he is. Yeah. So your work really is, is almost as a very applied criminologist. I don't call myself a criminologist because I really never had a qualification in criminology. I'm purely a psychologist that works with police. How do you feel about being a crime scientist there or a practical, oh, well, practical I sh- criminologist? I should or... say I am a crime scientist, shouldn't I? Because I'm one of the first ones to graduate from UCL with a PhD in crime science. I don't get hung up on labels and, and what they are, really. I just go with the, whatever the problem is. I mean, I, I'm forever frustrated with people that say, well, I don't do qualitative research. Well, it depends what you're looking right, for. Yeah. You know, oh, I don't do quantitative. I don't like stats. I try and do whatever is necessary to answer the question. Exactly. You're putting the cart before the horse by saying, no, I don't, I'm not going to use that. I'll do whatever you want, but I'm not using that method. Right. Well, yeah. yeah. But I think a lot of people end up that way because they don't want to learn a new method or they decide that those methods are difficult or a little, you know, esoteric. But the method has to match the problem. You can't force the problem to match whatever methods are available at your fingertips. No, I don't. And I'm all for evidence-based police, and I really am. But I can see why. You know, we talk to cops and that. They are put off because they do think it's all about randomised controlled trials, because that is heralded as the gold standard. It is. But I think I think most people who work in that space now, and certainly myself included, see a variety of, oh, yeah, of analytical methods as being relevant to that I field. I think it's more of a publicity thing that, you know, needs to be promoted. Well, they had the most internal validity and that was what really helps them but we can't exclude some of these other methods simply because they they, they don't reach that elaborate standard at the top I mean I think there's a lot of research we can be suspicious of or suspect or there's a chunk of stuff that we can consider to be promising Mm -hmm. 
But we need to be a little bit more encompassing, and I think that's only right. I'm not dissing randomised control trials. I'm just saying that from talking to cops, and I do a lot, sometimes they have incredibly good ideas, and they're a little bit put off by the kind of, the, almost the awesomeness of, of evidence-based policing, and, and they're a little bit worried about, like, if my idea doesn't come up with some statistical significant value, then it was a bad idea. And that's where we need to focus now, isn't it? All yeah. ideas are good. Some of the ideas that come up are fantastic, so I wouldn't want to see them fall by the wayside. Yeah, and they can be piloted and trialled in small ways. We definitely need to expand the field beyond these big sort of super experiments that everybody's heard of and and leave space for some of this innovation at the local level. No, and some people would say that's because that Rochefell has never done anything that's been a randomised control trial or even at that standard. And I admit that, so it's not sour grapes. (laughs) Completely. (laughs) Yeah, no, I'm not feeling it at all. No, no, not at all, no, no. That might be nice to ask kind of how I fell into this kind of world. Well... Because I don't really know, but I can try and articulate it. Yeah. It was nothing I chose to do, put it that way. <laughs> I mean, you talk about falling into this career, and I had a mountaineering yeah. accident. Felt, um, I literally Did literally you get clever? Fell. Did you bang your head? <sighs> yeah, yeah. Hit my head and missed my brain by about five feet. So. <laughs> <laughs> I seriously didn't get clever to about 31. I don't know what happened. You know, Liam Gallagher, he's supposed to have fallen, fallen out From of a tree. From Oasis, yes. to have fallen out of a tree when he was 12. And that's kind of made him the kind of person that he is. Yeah, that kind of body gesture that you yeah. just did there works really well on podcasts. <laughs> I didn't mean it started yet. Well, I've actually pressed the button. Ah, oh, we could have said. It's nice to see you here anyway. Well, thank you. In Iceland. In Akureyri, of all places. The second largest city in Iceland with a population of 20,000. That's right. Most of your British listeners would think it would be the supermarket chain, but it's actually the country. Lovely. You did the smart thing because you flew here from Reykjavik and I drove and it's starting to get into the winter. There's no shortage of snow around, but uh, it was a struggle to get up and down those hills in my little Kia, whatever it was, Kia hamster, the little power of a leaf blower, but got here eventually. But you flew over the mountains. That must have been fantastic. We did, but our plane was marginally bigger than your car. So uh, (laughs) you might have got the better end of the deal there, to be quite honest. And it's probably still the second largest aircraft in the country too. Probably, yeah. You've got a book coming out next year practical psychology for policing. How did you get into this whole gig? It wasn't by design. It never is for the most interesting people. No, I've never been a police officer. Um, I thought about it when I was about 18, but there was two things that were prohibitive. One, I didn't do hierarchies at 18 and 19. And two, I didn't really want to swear allegiance to the Queen because I was into the Smiths and everything else. So Morris has got a lot to answer for keeping you out of policing then, right? So much to answer for and all the Smiths fans will get that one. Yes. Kept me out of the police, which is a good thing in retrospect. And I went off and did a psychology degree. And I came out with a psychology degree and what became a wife. But those things mandatory, you always come out with the two together. No, but when I looked at what course to do, I noticed that the ratio of men to women on the psychology degree was like 20% men, 80% women. And I figured that, you know, love might just be around the corner. See, that's a level of tactical thinking we could have really benefited from if you joined policing. I don't think it was a conscious thought. I think it was, uh, yeah, of a primate level. And ended up working in a psychiatric hospital. At least I think that was the purpose I was working there. You could tell the difference between inside and outside. I could tell the difference between patients and staff by the length of the cigarettes they smoked, because staff smoked smaller cigarettes. That was about the only difference. And then I started working in the community in a hostel with people with mental health problems and drug kind of issues. And I thought I was going to be a clinical psychologist. But by then I'd had enough of 
listening to people's problems. And I'm not proud of that, but it really is very person-orientated. No one ever says, how are you feeling today, Jason? It's always... Yeah, it's, always, it's a one-way gig, isn't it? It, really? it's it like, is. It's like when people call the police. Nobody ever calls police and say, hello, officer, hi. No, everything's absolutely rosy today. Everything's going fabulous. I just thought I'd call to say, I hope you're having a lovely day. Yeah. Just always dealing with drama. So I needed a job. And I ended up gravitating more towards criminal behaviour. And I ended up somehow working for the Home Office. When, do you remember the regional crime directors that were set up? Well, it was one of those initiatives that lasted a little bit until somebody new came along. And what's the phrase you like to use? Killed all the cubs? Killed all the cubs. Yeah, that was politically came and killed all the cubs. But I milked it for a couple of years. And then I ended up working at a police college up in lovely North Yorkshire, which I could see the writing was on the wall for the police college because it cost about a million pounds of funding. And it wasn't in London. You didn't have to be Sherlock Holmes to work out that that one was next for the job. So there is, there does seem to be a pattern, doesn't there? Well, (laughs) but I'm also thinking here we are at the University of Akureyri, which is a five-hour drive from Reykjavik. So what does it say about the future, the longevity of the police college here? I am like the Grim Reaper of police colleges, obviously. (laughs) It doesn't matter where it is in the country, uh, or in the world, in fact. Uh, Once I've been there, it gets shut down. Yeah, that shut down, and I somehow managed to... I don't think blag is probably a stronger word, but I managed to get a position as senior lecturer at the University of Huddersfield, where I've been 16 years. And your PhD is from where? UCL. University College London, what a fine institution. Yes, I think it's still in the top 10 or at least the top 15. I was working at government office and we had a coach trip. Someone organised a coach trip to go out to Lancaster Farms Young Offenders Institute. I mean, you know, reeks of freak show. Let's go see the naughty boys. Yeah, I was a geographer. At least our field trips were to the countryside. You know, some of Manchester's finest young people were residing there. So there was about 20 of us in a coach and the coach driver couldn't find the place. And I thought, well, if I was coming to visit my friend stroke relative who was in here, then what would I do? You know, yeah, would I really get the three buses and 14 taxis from Liverpool or Manchester? Or would I perhaps borrow a car? Euphemistically borrow. Borrow a car, which I don't think is a crime in Iceland, because to be insured on someone's car, they literally just have to back you up, don't they? And... It's an incredibly trusting place. It is. We have discovered uh, in a couple of days that... If you're going to commit crime anywhere, commit crime in Iceland. Yeah, it's a nice place for committing crime. Even so, today at this conference where it's full of police officers. I've littered a couple of wallets. I've turned this into a profit. (laughs) I don't doubt that for a minute. Oh, yeah. So I asked straight away our security, do you have many stolen vehicles turning up here or being left here? And he said, not not especially. And the governor was showing us around. So I said, "Um, you know, can I do a little bit of research about what's going on here? One thing led to another, and I'd sort of met Mike Barton, I'm sure you've heard of. Yeah, former chief constable of Durham Constabulary. Lovely man. Yes, and a very, very forward thinker. So I said, well, can we do some research on visitors of Lancaster Farms? Because I think they might be committing crimes on the way there as well as trying to smuggle drugs in. And he said, well, actually, we do that sporadically. We send a team and we literally take the cars to pieces to see if they're roadworthy as well. He says, it causes all cars to havoc, but it sends out a really good message. So I thought, this is great. So they did 10 operations in 11 months. And the first one, they ended up arresting something like 19 people as a consequence. So I was very popular with the police. Yeah, I'm sure. Never reached those dizzy heights again. But that was my thinking around. You're like the, the offender whisperer. It was. I didn't know what it was called, but that was my self-selection policing angle, to which this rather strange man who used to turn up at the government office northwest every now and then with no shoes on or socks on and used to walk around. And I was reliably informed was one Professor Kempies. So got the courage to email him. And he sent me his phone number back within five minutes. 
and said, this is brilliant, we need to talk about this. And I met him about a week later and he said, oh, you're doing a PhD at UCL, by the way. Yeah, I'm not sure I'm going to leave in the podcast your recommendation that just random people and random students email well, people no. they've heard about, read about. As you... Well, maybe not random. If they perhaps emailed that Jerry Ratcliffe fella. Yeah, um... that's definitely not standard. <laughs> yeah, my email address is jason.roach at, where are you? <laughs> that isn't my address, actually. So, OK, you can give that one out if you like. People think that I encourage Ken's curveball ideas, but it's really the other way around. And I'm, I'm not proud of that. He's more like, almost like my intellectual midwife. So he said, what are you thinking about now? And I'll tell him. And some will go, oh, yeah, that's absolute rubbish. And other things will say, well, we could work that. Whenever you work somewhere, it's important to have some kind of intellectual critical mass mm. because people contribute ideas from different places. And sometimes it's shooting down ideas because they've seen shit that just isn't going to fly. They can stop you going down dead ends. And I think that's really useful. I always have some sympathy for academics who work in very isolated environments because they just don't have that no. critical mass. And it's a little bit like police officers who are forward thinking and innovative. If they're in very traditional departments, it's incredibly isolating. As I always say, they should join societies and get out to conferences and meet other people who they can start to bounce ideas off. But now they can find their tribe. I think it's even more necessary than that. I think it's like being in therapy. So all therapists have a therapist. And I really think that's what you need. And I admit that I've probably got imposter syndrome anyway from all this. I think many of us have that because I think many of us are aware of how much we don't know about the field. Yeah. Which is why you need to see yourself as the, not the finished article. I mean, I never send anything in for publication and assume it'll just sell straight through. Well, no, nothing of mine sells straight through, but that's because I'm a shit writer. <laughs> well, I was sailing around that. I was trying to be optimistic for your podcast. But that's when the therapy comes in, when you, you've got a mentor or mentors and you say, well, what do you think? Am I banging my head against a brick wall yeah. with this? Or does this have legs? The offender self-selection work. That I find really fascinating because I think it's something that's lost a little bit in the current debate about policing, where we're getting a lot of people trying to dissuade policing from engaging as much in a number of places in the, the kind of post-pandemic, post-George Floyd world. There isn't a lot of thirst for proactive policing. But the offender self-selection work really feeds into some of that. Yeah, it's, it's non-discriminatory. It's because somebody has committed an offence that you've identified as a trigger offence that's good for uncovering more serious criminality. So it isn't that they're black or a certain religion or they're a certain gender. It's the fact that they've committed that minor offence. So I think it circumvents a lot of the uh, shaking of the usual suspect tree, which yeah. kind of contravenes human rights. I mean, I may have committed an offence of burglary 25 years ago, but should I really be dragged in because I'm on record for, for using a suction cup 25 years ago and that's what was used? So explain the underlying idea behind offender self-selection. Well, I haven't decided whether I'm going to actually have a tattoo with this on or put it on my gravestone should I have one. I've heard you have other tattoos but we can't get into descriptions of those on the podcast. No, no, you told me to keep it clean so I will do. And that is that those that do big bad things also do little bad things. Look at it as a Venn diagram with serious crime circle one side, overarching kind of minor crime. We're looking at those in the middle. We're looking at those in the intersection. We're looking at those that do both. And the evidence that we've compiled over the years uh, has been that the versatility is there. You know, offenders are not homogenous. They do not just commit one type of crime. They might prefer one type of crime, of course. They might gravitate towards burglary. But in Jackie Schneider's study, for example, you know, when she talked to incarcerated burglars, they burglarised, if that's a word, you know, once a fortnight, once a month even, but they were shoplifting three times a week. Right. And she said, basically, you should see burglars as shoplifters on their day off. 
the challenge with this is that there's a drive to ask the police to de-emphasize the small crimes. Mm. But you're finding, not just with Jackie Schneider's work, but with your work and other people's work, a lot of evidence that offenders can bring attention to themselves in a small way. And that's a great way to flag up to police officers that you're increasing the likelihood of running into somebody who's a more serious offender, right? That's true. Finding the trigger crimes is the hardest point because of all the millions of minor offences. Uh, I mean, Ken's classic first one and the parking illegally in a disabled bay. Yeah, explain that one. The story goes that he was, it was in Huddersfield actually, he was going over to Sainsbury's and he parked and there wasn't any parking spaces, but he saw somebody in a rather nice sports car come and park in a disabled bay. And when they got out but didn't limp, and they looked on the car and they didn't have any kind of blue badge, as we have over here. A disabled parking sticker or a license plate, yeah. yeah. And then when he looked, there were actually other places that were quite close, so that he thought, I could understand them doing that if they're just going to the cash point or popping in to buy cigarettes, there'll only be two minutes, there's nowhere else to park. But the fact that there are other places now to park... Just a couple of slots away. Yeah, it's just like a, a low-level disregard, impoliteness, if you like. It's just a little hint of a fuck you to everybody else. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. This played on his mind for a bit, and he decided to pull in a few favours at um, Huddersfield Police Station and said, you know, can you perhaps get some information from traffic wardens that we used to have then and keep an eye on people that are parking in disabled bays illegally around um, Huddersfield and take the numbers down and then we'll trace them afterwards. And, you know, sort of 50 odd percent of them, when they put the number plates through the police national computer, Ken uses the phrase excited police attention. Really? <laughs> well, hello. But the first thing I pointed out to him that that didn't necessarily mean that the person that the car was registered to was actually driving, to which he told me, that, shut up, we couldn't possibly find that one out. But yeah, that again, that was the, the beginning of the thinking. Well, if you've got a high level disregard for the law, are you really going to stop? And, and say, no, I can't park on it. Unless you're actually in the act of committing a serious offence, then you don't want to consciously draw attention to yourself. So when people are parking illegally in a disabled bay, yeah. when they had other opportunities, it's much more likely yes. that they will also have yes. other indicators that police will be interested in. Yes. That's a really good example. Are there any others? Oh, there's lots. Uh, how long have you got? I edit, don't worry. I went right back to Dick Turpin. You remember the, the notorious highwayman? Indeed. Uh, I mean, not personally. No. Well, no, even before your time. Well, forget all the folklore stories. The bloke was a complete nutter bastard who'd murdered people. And he was caught stealing a horse, which went down as stealing a handsome cock. Um, we'll say no more about that. We won't. It's not a poultry offence, nor a sex offence. And um, he was in prison and he made the mistake of writing a letter to his brother and said, Dear brother, I'm in prison for stealing a horse. Thank God they don't know I'm the notorious highwayman, Dick Turpin. <laughs> he was banking on the jailers not being able to read, but he probably had the only literate jailer in the whole of the country who read it and he subsequently hanged as the notorious highwayman, Dick Turpin. You know, contemporary ones, uh, one of the Madrid bombers was stopped for speeding en route, and if they'd looked in his boot, they would have found one of the bombs. Well, it's one of the biggest terrorist attacks that's taken place in the European mainland. Yeah, there's all sorts of missed opportunities. My favourite one is, oh, it's not favourite only in the sense that it's quite um, sensational and all the students love it because it involves a serial murderer. The Yorkshire Ripper? Yeah, the Yorkshire Ripper was identified really because he had false plates on his car, yep. trying to conceal his identity. And Daniel Rifkin, who was a serial murderer, I think it was in America, uh, might have been Australia, we'll look him up, or even Canada. For the point of the story, it doesn't matter. So I think we can pretty much say he's not from Iceland. No, he's not from Iceland. And he was stopped for having a faulty tail light. And when they looked in the back of his van, he had the body of his 13th victim. 
I think you're talking about Joel Rifkin, the American serial killer, got sentenced to 203 years in prison for the murder of nine women. That's what I wrote. How many Rifkin murderers are out? I think that's a, that's offender self-selection right there. Is your last name Rifkin? Yes, I think we're going to pull you over for a search. Sorry to anyone called Rifkin, but um, yeah, beware of your uh, relatives. Yeah, I think we've pretty much discovered, decided that you're all just a family full of murderers. <laughs> <laughs> How can police use this? There is a big distinction here that I've had to, I have to draw with police officers sometimes because when I talk about self-selection, they see it as a way of almost harassing or making it difficult right. for someone. There's, there's got to be a degree of proportionality yes. creeping in here, right? So one police officer, who should remain nameless, said, oh, we do that. We're watching Major Drug Lord or something and we want to inspect his car. We just break his back light and knock on the door and say, you've got a broken back light. Oh, good grief, really. I mean, it's a bit like Al Capone being put away for tax evasion. That's not self-selection. Everyone knew who Al Capone was. They just could only get him for tax evasion. Right. So, Can, well, you're getting into, at least for the first example, very murky. You know, it's not murky at all. No, no, no. It's no, no, entirely no, no. unethical. And I wouldn't advocate that at all. Nor would, uh, would I prescribe what the police officers do with the person that they've stopped. We're not saying if you stop them for speeding, you have to give them a ticket. I'm not taking the discretion in its way. All we're saying is, just think kind of methodically, probably what you should be doing anyway, and right. dig a little bit deeper. Yeah. Yeah. Having said that, I do have a recurring dream stroke nightmare where I am pulled over by the police for having a faulty backlight and they keep me by the roadside for two and a half hours. And then I realise that actually I should be happy because someone's actually read something that I've written. Yeah, a two and a half hours seems strangely specific in terms of time frame. Is this a recurring nightmare or a memory? You weren't called Rifkin in another life, were you? <laughs> Yeah, maybe. No, it's a recurring dream. It's my just desserts dream, I think, to be quite honest. But the thing about self-selection policing is, and we've said this from the beginning, that it has to be as least intrusive as it possibly can into yes. people's lives. But there's a huge false positive rate in that. There is. We haven't found yet one better than the disabled bay ones because it was completely painless. Because yeah. the people that were parking in the disabled bays illegally were going off into the shops they were having their number plates checked while they were out. If nothing, there was nothing untoward, they didn't know. And it's really hard to find those ones. What's also nice about that is that it probably taps into a lot of public support for that. Mm. Because disabled people get thoroughly pissed off when they can't access bays that are designed for them. And also the legitimate public users of parking lots and car parks get pissed off when other mm. people are essentially cheating the system. And so the fact that they have earned and self-selected, I think that's the key part. We're not targeting you to pick on you for any issues of, as you say, race or demographics or any part of your history. You self-selected into this. You chose to be a bit of an asshole and park in a disabled bay when you're not disabled. I did a study a couple of years ago where I was looking at people who drive whilst disqualified from driving. Are these people who are self-selecting themselves as, as serious criminals anyway? Or are they people who are hapless or what have you, where they're late, you know, I'm going to drive because the kids are late for school, I'll drop them off, and they're actually otherwise law-abiding. And I managed to get access to some data in West Midlands Police over a 10-year period. Just looked at 50 people that were charged with, I think it was an, over a five-year period, they were charged with driving while disqualified. And I thought that out of the 50, if I had 15, I would be happy. It was 43. 43 That's of them. Amazing. I spent three days there going through all the information when I only had, only had, only had booked a hotel for one day. because <laughs> And these were a random 50, so I suppose I could have picked another 15. It wouldn't have been as high, but the, I didn't pick them. They were just randomly picked. 
And I don't think anyone would disagree with police keeping an eye on everybody that's banned from driving on their patch, for example. Just on principle alone. Exactly. Because you know they're not insured and it's a safety issue. But the fact that it's also an indicator of potential serious criminality in other areas. It is. I mean, I'd like to go back if there's any sort of correlation between how that person, what that person did to get banned in the first place. So do people that accumulate three points over a short space of time, are they less likely to be identified as serious offenders than someone that gets a, a ban instantly for doing 100 miles an hour or is drink driving or do you know what I mean? Um, do they accumulate their ban over time yeah. or more likely to just get it in exactly. one hand? Exactly. You have a psychology background mm. and your uh, forthcoming book, Practical Psychology for Policing, looks at the, the psychological components that are useful for policing. What are the psychological reasons that drive offender self-selection? where they're self-selecting into the attention of police. There are different points at which they could commit a minor offence. So they could do it nowhere near a serious offence. And those are the people, they don't think for one minute a police officer is going to put them parking under a double yellow line together with they're a serious criminal. Yeah. Go, they actually think that that, you know, that officer is going to think that they're just somebody who's parked under a double yellow line. And Most cops yeah. think that too, yeah. They so, don't think that way. So that's the psychology. The risk doesn't even enter their minds because the connection's not there. Right. You know? But just on a fundamental level, they're more leaning towards being rule breakers to begin with. Exactly. One not even think about it. I mean, if you are engaged in heavy duty, you know, offending, are you really going to be bothered about sort of parking in the disabled bay and upsetting all the poor people that can't park there that should park there? No, you know, it's an underlying disregard for other human beings. And they will take more care over not giving anything away when they are close to or committing a serious offence for obvious reasons, but their guard will be dropped when they're not. And they will commit minor offences far more frequently than they commit the serious. So the opportunities are there to identify them. Yeah. It's whether police take them or not. I think you only have to look at serious repeat offenders and look at their criminal histories mm. to see it's all over the place most of the time. You do, but the problem is they fall through the cracks. So Rifkin, Daniel, whatever his name was. We'll call him Steve from now on, just to confuse think, everybody. I don't think when he was in court, they read out all the list of charges of nine or 13 bodies or whatever it was, people that he killed, and then went, oh, by the way, uh, you had a faulty tail light, so we're giving you a fixed penalty notice. So it's really hard to pick these up. The novel way that Peter Sutcliffe was identified as the Yorkshire Ripper, because I don't think he was, he was ever charged stopped. with having false plates officially. You know, right. On his record, it won't appear because they uncovered him as... I can't believe the police let him off with that. I mean, how many murders did they charge him with? But they let him off with <laughs> having false license plates. Yeah. 13 plus a false plates. Shocking leniency. Yes, it is, isn't it? But th that's the difficulty of picking these things up retrospectively is they're probably not recorded. The right. What is nice about this is this notion of offender self-selection is a little bit of a pushback against this notion that, you know, when people say, we just want the police to target the most serious crimes. Mm which from an uninformed lay perspective makes sense, right? We just want the police to focus on these things. But how on earth do you think we're going to start looking at these people? They don't just drive down the road saying, hey, stop me. You know, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm known for doing bank robberies. Yeah, in this case, we should sweat the small stuff because it is indicative of the big stuff. But not for absolutely every crime, of course. No, some sense of proportionality yeah, is important. I mean, some of the stuff we've done recently and not got to write up yet, but animal cruelty, uh, repeated animal cruelty. And that could be anything from people in gangs with dogs that, you know, basically treat them awfully so that they fight and, and dog people that are involved in dog fighting and all that kind of thing. It comes with the, the persona and the gang persona. And so the people that are committing animal cruelty quite often engaged in all sorts. You know, I don't want to say this, but, you know, the evidence base isn't there yet, but if you're violent to animals, you're likely to be violent to human beings as well. You have a callousness about how you approach life. Yeah, a coldness, a kind of instrumental violence kind of approach to whatever it is that you're doing. 
I always find frustration when I uncover these things because you'll find that RSPCA, who do mainly do charge people with animal cruelty. Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, yep. That's right. Don't speak to the police. Right. Kind of, they're not joined up. And yet, there's one thing British haters cruelty to animals. Well, that's right. I used to, I used to do a lecture on um, a couple of lectures on offender profile in an undergraduate course. And I used to show them a true crime series, if you remember that, it was on in the 90s, about Colin Ireland, who was nicknamed the Gay Slayer. He was a man who decided he was going to become a serial killer. Be careful what you choose. Your New Year's resolution, that was yeah, his. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah. And he killed five life, gay life men. choices, I'm going to become a serial killer. It's like a very conscious decision-making <laughs> process. Yeah. yeah, I suppose. And he killed five men, you know, five gay men by the end of that year. So, you know, he was true to his Good grief. His resolution, so to speak, uh, which was awful. It's not that graphic, but they show that, you know, tying people up and stuff like that. And Yeah, those television programmes love all the lurid details. It, so, and he'd sit there with the body until the morning, so as not to arise suspicion. So he would leave at eight or nine o'clock in the morning when everybody else was so it wasn't really him. and the students like sort of desensitized to violence i watch it on the tv until on one murder he killed the cat and laid the cat next to the man that he killed oh they were up in arms about that right. that, that's yep. it he's overstepped the mark and i thought yeah that is where your british barometer of violence is so yeah i think that one would have legs and not just yeah. four of them no the animal cruelty one but again as, as i say wherever you look computers aren't and, and databases don't speak to each other so sometimes when you do find a link for self-selection the practicalities of the and the setup right. make it almost impossible to kind of police if you see what i mean yeah you've also started doing work in other areas of kind of the psychology of policing and especially around crime prevention mm. you were talking here at the conference here in akareri about using nudges as ways to encourage crime prevention and i think there's a tendency for people to think too much about crime prevention as target hardening and uh, surveillance systems. Mm. But there's a lot to be said for, I think we were talking about the value of just encouraging people to do the right thing sometimes and creating that kind of environment. Can you tell me a bit more about nudging? Yeah, I'm working on trying to dispense with the nudge kind of uh, label, if you like, because that's very much tied with kind of social policy type things, you know, health and improving, right. getting people to eat more healthily. So we're in a post-nudge world then, aren't we? We are, and I think, so I'm trying to kind of rebrand it as a wider psychology of influence, and it works much better with those who are victims or are potential victims, i.e. us. Because we live such busy lives, we don't think about things and we make ourselves vulnerable on occasion when we, we needn't do. It's just down to lack of foresight or what have you. But I've been looking at, been doing a lot around kind of, well, how can you encourage people to take a bit more of a care about their own personal security? So whether it be the study that we did where people were leaving their cars unlocked unwittingly. I think across half of America, we have a problem with people getting their handguns stolen from unlocked cars. Mm. You know, it's such a simple thing. Lock your damn car or even take the gun inside. But yeah, yeah crazy. Yeah, simple things like that. And then they don't, generally, it is, it's, it's a mistake. Sort of a situation crime prevention kind of cure might be quite clunky and it would be a massive kind of campaign about lock your cars. So you've got to be much subtler. And, and it ties in with the problem sort of orientated policing kind of problem solving approach. You've got, who is it you're trying to communicate with? You've got generic things don't work, you know, so generic messages don't work. So you need to tailor the messages and the messenger to a specific target group that you're trying to encourage to be more security conscious. Yeah, you were giving an example about changing a leaflet campaign based on even down to the individual roads today, weren't you? 
going back to the study of, of kind of people leaving their cars open, it was a rather nice area of the country, of, of a nice town. And people were just, it, they were on their driveways. I don't, people seem to think that once you park your car and it's safe on your driveway. It's magically on the driveway yeah. as opposed to on the street eight That's feet right. away. Yeah. That's right. That means that it's the risk has been minimized. And I've done it with myself. You know, the kids are making a lot of noise. You're trying to rush them into the house and, you know, fewest casualties you possibly can uh, and you forget to zap it and that's what was happening because I always try to speak to the people that commit these crimes it's invaluable it's I'm not you know I'm not a sort of a, a massive data person who kind of can come up with all sorts of things from a massive data set I actually like talking to human beings I think that's lost a little bit on so many police officers mm. you know even they just do a quick interview to get a confession but they never actually spend time just sitting and chatting to offenders yeah. to learn about their world and why they're doing what they're doing and how they're doing what they're doing and the crime prevention value of learning how yeah. and why is huge. Now, again, before COVID, I was doing that with all sorts of prolific car thieves. So you speak to these people. I mean, they might tell you a load of old rubbish, but not always. And it's not always rubbish. And I've not perfected, but I've got a good way of getting them to relax. And to, So instead of you saying, well, how do you do it? You talk in the abstract. And I always say, well, if I was thinking of becoming a car thief what just what three things do you think i need to think about first i went there to um interview some burglars once in prison and, and they wouldn't say anything so i went home and i went back the next day and said uh, okay so you've given your mum some security advice about what she should do with her flat or her house what would you do well you don't want those french doors because you can easily get into those and you, and so they will talk to you but, but it sounds like the value of it is depersonalizing it because it, you don't want to make them face up to the consequences or thoughts about what they've done. Well, I think it's more that they don't want to incriminate themselves. I say I'm not. <laughs> right, I'm yeah. not a police officer. How the hell do they know that? How do they know I'm not wearing a wire? You know. And sometimes I say, can I record it? So that's even. I'm up front with them. But many of them, what they actually, they're not bothered about it. It's not like they're giving you trade secrets away. They're not safe crackers that are telling you how they, you know, have got this new device. To, that's right. And they know that they have to change what they do. Well, they've do. also already been banged up, so it's not like they got away with it. No, and they know that when they go out, I and mean, they're not banged up for long, but when they go back, the game's changed anyway because there will be some new device that's been, you know, it's an arms race, isn't it, between those that would want to protect and those that would want to take. Yes, um, every time we uh, introduce some new crime prevention measure, they find a new way to overcome it. Yeah, I mean, they were telling me about the devices that you can get off the internet. Most of them told me that everything they know is from the internet. You know, you literally really? get anything from the internet about cars, whatever you want. The old uh, half a tennis ball trick to get into BMWs. Oh, the key that opened every Cortina. Now, they've moved on since then. and they you showing your age, Matt? <laughs> talk about four Cortinas, <laughs> bloody hell. <laughs> well, I'm old. What do you want me to talk about? That was like the first model that came after the Model T, wasn't it? <laughs> Not far off that. Yeah. So what was talking about? So they have these devices now that they can get off the internet and they can order them, probably by Amazon like everybody else, but other distributors are available. And it picks up the frequency of the zapper. Yeah, the car opening device. And yeah. it, and there you go, they've got it. But those are the ingenious ones. And then, of course, I talk to ones that just get a brick and throw it through the window. <laughs> Old <Right>. school. Yeah. <laughs> you know? But talking to different ones will give you different perspectives on crime prevention as well. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. I did ask one if he'd heard about situational crime prevention. He said, oh, yeah, that's the 25 techniques thing, isn't it? No, really? <laughs> yeah. That's fantastic. In the same way that Colin Island, the serial murderer that I told you about, he'd read all the FBI manuals on profiling so that he knew that, if, that they would think that he, you know, he was an organised offender because of the way he left his crime scene. He says, in my life, I wasn't organised at all. I just knew they'd be looking for this certain type of person. So they do read this kind of stuff. Offender counterintelligence. That's right. I'd love it if I met someone that you know, had changed the way they do things 
because they'd read self-selection policing. That would make me so happy. (laughs) (laughs) Not a police officer. I was a more successful offender because of what I learned from you. I'm sure that's a net game. I changed my ways, which is why I don't like zero tolerance policing, because the whole self-selection thing would fall down. I mean, going back to your original question, horse's mouth. So there's a gap for the likes of me and you, and you do this as well, to go in there and, and say, well, it's, this isn't going to go anywhere other than in a paper that no one will read. That's right, yeah. <laughs> no, no fear there, don't worry about it. You know, you're safe. I can even put your name, no one will know. If I'm lucky, <laughs> this will be cited four times in some obscure journal, a Bangladeshi journal of sheep stealing and criminology. Oh, no, yeah. I only go high impact. Yeah, yeah. Don't, don't, not that journal, you know. It's a great editorial board. And that's it. And I, and I can't see why people aren't doing that all the time. And that's how it all started, all the kind of the crime prevention stuff. To do that, there was a lot of talking to offenders and, and that just doesn't happen as much now and I don't know why. Well, I mean, I, I think people have stopped talking to offenders as much and they've stopped talking to police officers as well. And I think a lot of it's too much uh, taking the economist's approach of downloading a data set, writing the paper and then doing a quick analysis to support the paper you just wrote. That's true. And going back to your original question, which is about the psychology of it all, what I'm trying to add to that, I've been picking up little tacit knowledge tips, so how police officers do things. And that was based on the fact that, like you, I go out with police officers. I always have to qualify that as I'm not a stalker. I do go out legitimately with police officers and just watch what they do. No, I'm a policing stalker. I don't mind owning up to that. All right. I can only speak for myself. And I was out with some, oh, about five or six years ago, and they were, were in the car and I was in the back. Of, um, they forgot to let me out because you can't get out of the back of a police car unless they help you. They did that deliberately, <laughs> mate. Talk, I don't want to tell you that. I went and talked to these two lads. They came back and I said, what was all that about? And they said, oh, we, kind of, we don't really know them, but... We were just checking that they weren't up to no good kind of thing because they're hanging around here and what have you. So I said, well, what did you do? Did you ask for ID? No, we just asked what their names were. Okay, and did you ask their... Yeah, and we asked their addresses. And I said, well, did you do any checking or anything? No, no, no need to, no need to. So this didn't sit right with me for a bit. So I thought, well, they could have been telling you anything. You know what I mean? So I decided to do a quick study. Again, it was with students, admittedly, but I know at least three of the students in there had a quite a good criminal record. So they weren't all squeaky clean. Always right. handy, right? That was, one of them was out on licence. So I thought, so I said, right, here's an experiment. You've been stopped by police officers and I want you to write down your name, a false address, including postcode, which I believe is zip code for your American Look listeners. You. I know, traveler. I've learned. Um, and then I want you underneath to write your real address. In Iceland, they don't have addresses. You just deliver it to Ollie. Well, yeah, there's only three people, so it doesn't matter. And, uh, and they don't deliver of a daytime. We found that out as well. Yeah, only... no package deliveries in a daytime in Iceland. Very smart crime prevention. That's great. They know everybody's at work, so they only deliver packages between, what's it, 5 p.m. and 10 p.m. They don't deliver in the middle of a Teams meeting that you're on at them, you know. Kind of... <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I gave them 15, 20 seconds, I think it was, and I asked them to work out where they thought that generation of that false address had come from. So I had all sorts of wonderful weird, some of them were saying, oh, it's, it was my old address. Great, well, retrospectively, if I'm a copper, I've got you. My favorite was two girls had put, this is the address of someone I hate. Well, if that's reciprocated by the person you hate, they'll go, I know who it is, because they hate me. And it turned out that random generation was quite was Everybody difficult. gave away some kind of a clue. Yes, yes, right. even if it was the right number, or person had gone to the extent of changing everything. But the key was the zip code stroke postcode. People are rubbish at generating a false postcode that exists. Right. When I checked, about 90% didn't exist. Right. So if you have a police officer who stops people and asks them for their postcode as well, and has access on their palm top, whatever it is, to the straight away, you could say, well, actually, that's not right. Yeah. I had a case when I stopped a guy who was wanted we put him on the spot and just kind of said, what's your name? 
And he had to make up a false name at that point. And he ended up basically using his brother's false name. Mm. So he used a lot of his own details because he wasn't smart enough to fabricate something. And of course, it's actually difficult to randomly fabricate something. And he gave his brother's name. So we're having this conversation. Of course, his brother didn't come back wanted. And uh, all I did was uh, change the first name from Andrew to Colin, and it came back wanted. And he said, how did you know it was me? So we're not a rocket scientist, mate. He was wearing a necklace with the name Colin on it. <laughs> that, that was a clue there. As a, as a top cop once said to me, if you're looking for Moriarty's, you're in the wrong game. So my kind of advice to police officers was ask people about their postcode. Now, if they say, I don't know it, all falls down. Yeah. Yeah. But why would you feel the need to lie about your postcode unless you were trying to hide something? Have you told that to the police? How do the police respond when you tell them that there are clues based in the lies that people give? Mixed response. Depends how much experience the person's got, the police officer's got. Those that have kind of been out doing the job on the streets 15 years ago, well, yeah, that, that's kind of, we kind of know that. We don't always use postcodes, but we know how to reverse informate our questions and stuff like that. Right. And a chief constable who should remain nameless, and he said, when I was on the beat, the kids underage trying to get into clubs and drinking and stuff like that, and he said, and we used to ask them their age, and they used to give us their brothers or whatever it was. Yeah. He said, so I used to I cut out the signs of the Zodiac and the dates that correspond with them out of a woman's magazine. And I used to have that in my pocket. So I used to ask them their date of birth, but I used to ask them for their Zodiac sign. Oh, blimey, that's fantastic. Yeah. So they were never prepared for that. And he said, so I knew immediately. I said, is that a common, at the training centre, is that passed on? No, that's not passed on. And that was kind of my tacit knowledge and the brain drain thing. When people retire, you know, it's 30 years experience. Don't plug them into some kind of computer and download all their experience and their knowledge and everything. They just say, see you later. (laughs) Thanks for your your service. Goodbye. Oh, I never got a bottle of whiskey when I left. I did 11 years. I probably didn't uh, earn a bottle well, of whiskey. You lucky. Probably got, got a miniature. Bottle of martini, you lucky. 11 years. I mean, it's still, a, worth still it. a boy. <laughs> Uniform was the same one you started with. Yeah, all that knowledge kicking around in there, all those little tips that could make small differences, yeah. right? We're not looking for massive wins, but the little small things could just tilt the balance a little bit more back in the favour of uh, mm. law and order or the good and the bad and the ugly or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, the cumulative effect of them may be quite significant. But unfortunately, these are the things that they don't, they don't get passed on. Well, look, for take, making all the effort to fly all the way to Akureyri in Iceland just to speak to me, I can't tell you how honoured I am. Well, so you should be. <laughs> it was a pleasure. <laughs> Cheers, Jason. Thank you. That was episode 44 of Reducing Crime, recorded in Akureyri, Iceland in October 2021. If you follow at underscore reducing crime or at Jerry underscore Ratcliffe on Twitter, don't forget the underscore, you will learn when new episodes are released. And if you're teaching a class and would like multiple choice questions for any episode, you can use the DM feature to ask for them. Easy. Finally, transcripts of this and every episode are at reducingcrime.com slash podcast. Be safe and best of luck. (laughs) 